You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bloom and Tech. I'm your host, David Bloom, and I am delighted to be once again with you as we pick through the rubble of the collision of media, entertainment, and technology to find a few golden nuggets of wisdom. I had a lot of really interesting conversations with some smart people lately. One of them was Walter Murch, who has been a pioneer in the use of digital editing systems for film and the creator, the guy who coined the term sound design. He's won three Oscars for both film editing and sound, including an unusual double for English Patient in both sound and film editing. He's gotten six other Oscar nominations and lots of other honors over the decades for films such as Apocalypse Now, Cold Mountain, The Conversation, The Godfather, etc., etc. He is a fascinating fellow. In our conversation, we talked not just about his new project, a documentary called Coup 53, about the very secret British agent at the heart of the 1953 Iranian coup that overthrew a democratically elected government and put in place the Shah, uh, and the role that the British intelligence agency MI6 and the CIA, then a very new, just a few years old organization, had in making all that happen. Uh, The British government still hasn't acknowledged its role. But we talked about that. We also talked about a lot of other interesting things, like the future of theaters and where they think he thinks they're going, including Coup 53 itself, which is using the new virtual cinema distribution method where it is streamed online and tickets are sold through local independent art house theaters. And you go through one of those that um, programs it on their list of interesting films to their mailing list. In that way, you can go find Coup 53, which is now out at coup53.com, C-O-U-P 53.com. Figure out which is the closest theater you'd like to support and buy tickets to watch it online. It's an interesting model and suggests a way forward for art house theaters, if not for the big chain theaters, for which he is considerably more pessimistic. But we talked a lot of other things, too. The the choice he made after decades of using first film cutting machines and then uh, the Avid uh, systems and then Final Cut Pro from Apple, he, for the first time, used Adobe Premiere Pro to cut Coup 53, a two-hour-plus documentary called from more than 500 hours of film that they shot and archival material that they gathered in the process of this. Merch was both writer, a co-writer and editor with Tagi Amirani, the Persian person behind uh, this really interesting project. Anyway, uh, it's a chance to think about uh, some of our role as uh, the U.S. government in, in various undercover uh, actions over the decades and whether that was a good lesson. The first one, Walter Murch's new project argues, the first of those undercover regime change projects by its intelligence forces started here. And after that came things like the Bay of Pigs and Chile and Vietnam and uh, much else. And it didn't always work out in the long-term best interest for our country, but nonetheless, it's an interesting conversation. So give a listen. We'll be right back and we'll talk more with Walter Murch. So thanks for uh, hopping on. I um, 
So thanks for uh, hopping on. I am delighted to talk with you a little bit about Coup 53 and your involvement in it. I noted that you are not just the editor, which is not a surprise, but also the writer, which is not what you're known for. So how did you get involved in this project? You clearly are quite invested in it in lots of different ways. I, I think anytime uh, you work on a non-scripted documentary, which this is, that the editor basically is a writer. Mm. And so Tuggy, the director, and I share co-writing uh, okay. credit on it. It's a little mm. bit like in the reality TV space, uh, they call them predators, which is sort of an unfortunate term, but the producer-editor, <laughs> because they're taking right. all that stuff and creating something out of a, a wad of, of uh, footage, right? So it's well, a little bit certainly of Certainly, we, we had 532 hours of material on this, so oh that definitely qualifies as the wad, as a wad. Yeah, <laughs> you sound like Fred Wiseman or something. I mean, he, uh, he gets that kind of volume and scale. How long did it take you to cut 532 hours into two? We had a eight-and-a-half-hour assembly in June of 2018. So Claude Lanzmann length is what we're talking about here. Yeah, more material comes in. And it was at that point we wondered, what, you know, what is, is this Claude Lanzmann territory? Yeah. Is it a six-part Netflix thing? And uh, we were also constrained by the amount of money we had to finish the film and the amount of time we had. And it was right around that point that the real significance of the this central character of Norman Derbyshire really began to take hold. And it was in the summer of 2018 that we uh, pitched the idea to Ray Fines to be the channel for Norman Derbyshire. Uh, and he agreed to do this. And so we shot his material in October of 2018. And that really was the, the lever, in a sense, that allowed us to condense eight hours down into just under two hours. Yeah, it's an interesting, I mean, you use a, a, a variety of uh, filmic techniques. I mean, Errol Morris, I'm sure, would 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 applaud strongly some of the, I, I don't know, is it? it's not really rotoscoping, but it's something like that, right? I mean, in terms of the... Oh, it, it, is, it is a kind of rotoscoping, the yeah. animation. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. To me, this is all a detective story, ultimately, right? I mean, and he's the central uh, who did it. Yeah. I mean, that, that certainly is the focus of the first half hour or 35 minutes yeah. uh, to uncover this uh, this transcript and then to find a way to wrangle that into the story and to allow the whole uh, history of the coup to coalesce around this man who played this hugely central but unreported role. He's a, he's a character who's completely disappeared from, or almost completely disappeared from history. We definitely didn't have him in our sights when we started on the project. The focus was really on Kermit Roosevelt, the, the American equivalent of Norman Derbyshire. But it, right. it became pretty clear once we had that transcript that the person really who, was, who had organized and, and generated the plan and who had all of the contacts. And Derbyshire had been in Iran since 1943, and he spoke Persian, and he knew all of the central and tangential characters, uh, and he had a real feeling for the people. So here, 10 years later, the coup is something that is his masterwork, in a, in a sense. 
he certainly, uh, as opposed to Stephen Mead, he was certainly much more capable of doing a remote management of the uh, Iran, uh, the, the Persian station or the Iran station or whatever, right? You know, it's interesting. You, you found the one photo of him, and he's quite a dashing fellow, tall and lean and a carved face with, uh, of course, wearing aviator sunglasses. It seems like it would have been required for this man. Did you find out more about him? You knew he spoke Farsi. You knew he spoke French uh, fluently. He had lived there for a decade before this. What else did you find out about this guy who was, I guess, what, MI6? He was, uh, that was his yeah, he was gig. He was MI6. He had gone to Iran as a soldier, 19 years old soldier, in 1943 during the war. And on his own bat, he had learned how to speak Persian. And he quickly uh, infiltrated himself into the culture of Iran. As a result, he was scooped up by MI6 to be part of their uh, operation, uh, operating out of the embassy, the British embassy in Iran, right after the war. We looked all over uh, the Internet for a picture of him and couldn't find anything. As, as late as doing the final mix on the film, which was in the spring of 2019, we managed to contact his daughter, who is in her late 40s, and she supplied, she was suspicious of this, obviously, to begin with, but we, we kept talking to her, and she eventually gave us more information about him and actually gave us some photographs but the photograph that's used in the film, we already had. We didn't know that that was Derbyshire, but Tuggy showed her that photograph and said, by any chance, is this him? And she said, yes, that's, that's dad. I find that fascinating. But I guess there was a real James Bond that inspired him, Ian Fleming, who was not this fellow, but this fellow certainly yeah. could have been. I mean, in terms of his effectiveness, uh, it's almost... Yeah. I mean, he was very level. different. He was very different than some of the people who worked for him who were all the kind of the classical, you know, they'd gone to university at Cambridge or Oxford and they were cultured. Yeah. This Derbyshire was a, uh, I think his father was a grocer in the north of England and he was a soldier during the war. And he very quickly moved up through the ranks and became the person who could do things. The, 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 the mandarins, you know, had their own attitude toward things, but in terms of actually making something happen, when they wanted that, they went to Norman and said, here's what we want to make happen. When so it they became... Yeah, but it wasn't just about making a good gin and tonic and sitting on the veranda right. in the British enclave by uh, Aquedad. Right, exactly. What happened to him? He was married to his first wife, in the late 1940s, he has six children, uh, all of whom are still alive. The daughter that we spoke to was the last born. So she was born probably in around 1970. His first wife was killed in an automobile accident in Iran. His second wife was working for MI6, that is uh, the daughter's mother. And she's still alive. And she came to a screening of the film with many of her relatives and it was a kind of an unreal experience. I mean, wonderful. But in that audience was Rafe Fiennes playing Derbyshire. John le Carré was there in the audience. Members of the Mossadegh family, his grandson and, and nephew, were there. And then 10 members of the Derbyshire family. Wow. And they all loved the film for all of the various different reasons. Mrs. Derbyshire said 
of Rafe's performance. That's Norman. That's the way really? he was. And so uh, there's 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 a uh, there's a film we jokingly called Coup Fifty Three Point One that we're thinking of making, which is the follow-up to all of the repercussions that will happen after the making of this film. Oh, you mean like sort of a, it's not behind the scenes, it's beyond the scenes, actually. Yeah, beyond the scenes, exactly. I think one of the most interesting implications of this that you all set up at the very end of the film is the way this, in a rather unlikely fashion, taught a set of unfortunate lessons to uh, what was becoming the world power of the United States about the uses of covert activity to control governments uh, and the meddling that went on for a good 30 years in a very explicit, I mean, really, at least through the church still, in the mid-70s. Still going on, I hate to tell you. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll give you that. Perhaps a little bit less obvious, certainly less reported. But it really, it, it, it sent a lesson that, hey, you can do this and not get any Americans killed or nobody, anybody gets to hear about and control resources, control access to uh, countries, et cetera, et cetera. But we've had disasters since then. Bay of Pigs to Vietnam, a pretty big one. Uh, after Dien Bien Phu, I mean, they, Eisenhower didn't want to lose the rest, of, uh, the rest of Southeast Asia, and we went from there and, and on in. So. You know, this, this was one of the things I learned making the film was that Truman had created the CIA as its name applies, as a central intelligence agency, because what he had found, he and Roosevelt had found during the war was that each of the armed forces had their own spy agency. They would get these papers, but they would have to fill it out, all of the uh, things in that report that would be good for the service in question. Who saw that coming, right? (laughs) So Truman said, before I get any of these papers, I want this bunch of scholars, which is what they were, to read the report and cut out all of the special interests and just give me the raw facts. I don't want to know what's good for you or you or you. And that was the way pretty much the CIA operated under Truman. When Eisenhower was elected, he brought the Dulles brothers in, and the Dulles brothers, both of them, were involved with the OSS during the war, the the Uh, the predecessor, right? And they saw the CIA as a perfect force to to weaponize to turn into a new version of the uh, OSS for the Cold War. And first out of the gate was the coup in Iran. Yeah. And as you said, it was by their own definition, it was a big success because no Americans got killed. It happened secretly. Nobody knew that the Americans were involved to begin with. And it was completely the opposite of the nightmare of the Korean War, which was going on at the same time, in which tens of thousands of Americans were dying every year and millions of Koreans. That's no way to run a railroad uh, when you can do this and change the whole geopolitics in a flash of an eye. And so that became, as you indicated, that became the template for this is how we're going to do it moving forward. And the very next year they did Guatemala, same deal. Uh, There was the Paris Peace Accords in 1954 to settle the whole Vietnam question. Dulles walked out of those episodes because he felt they were giving away the farm. And he said, 
you know, we managed uh, to get rid of Mossadegh and uh, we just did Guatemala. We're going to do the same thing in Vietnam. And then obviously Bay of Pigs is the same thing, Chile, the same thing. There was a pattern established in Iran. Uh, it was the first time the Americans had destabilized a foreign government in another hemisphere. We'd done lots of it in uh, the Dominican Republic and uh, the Philippines. Uh, I guess Cuba. that's another hemisphere. Well, we, uh, we really did Cuba. Then we got the yeah. Philippines out of it and then put a thumb on right. them. And yeah. Puerto Rico, the whole Spanish uh, episode, Spanish war episode. So this, this became a template, unfortunately, for everything moving forward. Well, you talked a little bit about having to wade through all this prodigious amount of footage. Talk to me a little bit about the the editing process because you you're you're a man who's won Oscars for both sound editing and for film editing and obviously bring a lot of thought into that process. What was the challenge here just getting through all that stuff? Or, I mean, how how did it work uh, and it's very different obviously in a documentary than it is in a, a a narrative film, a scripted film. So talk about that a little bit. At a certain point in the evolution of a film from an editor's point of view, a documentary and a fiction feature are the same, which is you've got what you've got in some kind of form. And now the question is, how can we make it shorter, better, clearer, more emotional, you know, to deliver the goods? But getting to that point is very different. Hmm. Uh, in a fiction film, you have a script, basically, that has done a lot of that work for you. And your job as an editor is an interpretive one. In that sense, you're like a pianist, and here's the score, and you're deciding how to play this music, the script, with the most sensitivity and feeling and emotion and power. With a documentary, you have 532 hours to filter through and condense down into something. It's a, it's a little bit like making butter Although I've never done that, I've heard it described, but you basically take a bunch of stuff that your intuition tells you might be a scene, put it in front of you and start churning it, start seeing what likes to work with each other. At a certain point, things start to stick to each other. Oh, it likes to cut from this to that. And this is a good counterpoint for that. And this turns this upside down. These clumps of butter begin to emerge out of the way you get rid of the way, which is the you know, rejected footage, right. take your nice chunk of butter, put it in the fridge, and go on to the next scene. Then it becomes a question, as you can see in the film, with cards, trying to find out what is the best structure for each of these scenes and how those scenes work together in the largest sense. And this is where a film editor of this kind of film is the writer of the story writing with Tony. In a nutshell, that's that's kind of the difference. Now, I certainly understand his engagement in this story. What got you engaged in it? Why why did you devote the time, the significant time that you've involved, invested in this? Well, what what uh, brought you in? You, when you start a project, you never know what's going to happen. One of my Ten Commandments uh, of life is, if I engage with a project, I never abandon it. I signed on to this project when the idea was maybe it would take eight months to put it together. After three months, the, there was a Hollywood studio behind it, but they dropped out. They got cold feet or something. They never told us why. And so we were abandoned and we had to shut down. 
I taught at some of the film schools here in London. I worked on a book that I'm writing and Tagi went around raising money and, but we continued to do research. Uh, then we started up again six months later. It did take four years of work. Uh, that was, you know, I started working five years ago, but we, we basically finished the film in the summer about a year ago. I had edited uh, Sam Mendes's film Jarhead, which was about mm -hmm. the first Gulf War. And so I read up on the history of Middle Eastern oil just so I knew what the context was. And that's where I first met Mossadegh and Iran and the coup. So I already knew something about it. And then when I met Tagi in New York uh, in 2012, I was editing a documentary about the Large Hadron Collider and the search for the Higgs boson. And that film was being financed by a gentleman who was also financing Tagi's film. That's where we met at this gentleman's apartment. And we struck it off because Tagi graduated in physics uh, from university and then switched to filmmaking. So we talked physics and he helped us get into a film festival in, at Sheffield and our film won the audience award there. And so we kept in touch. I found myself at Loose Ends in 2015. My wife is English. We have a place in London. She said, well, why don't you go work with Tagi on this documentary he's making? And I, you know, I, I had enjoyed Particle Fever so much and I liked Tagi, so I said, sure. But again, once I'm engaged in the project, I don't say goodbye. I stick with it. And here we are five years later. Tagi's got his his own past, his own family uh, relationships and his own as a, a man of Persian descent. But it certainly, uh, did it open your eyes? You said you were aware of the Mossadegh stuff. I mean, I think it is out there, certainly, but not well understood in the United States. Uh, we're certainly finding lots of opportunities to uncover the short, shortcomings of our uh, U.S. history uh, classes these days uh, with Black Lives Matter and all the rest. Did you learn a lot in this? Yeah, I, I knew kind of the external liniments of this story. I knew there was somebody called Mossadegh. I knew that he nationalized the oil in Iran. I knew that that upset the governments of Great Britain and the United States because nobody had ever nationalized oil before except in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And the idea was uh, after the Second World War, there was all this feeling of self-determination for countries, the yes. end of the British Empire, and that if you added countries owning their own oil system, this would be terrible from the powers that be point of view. So this had to be quashed, was the feeling. But I didn't know anything of the particulars. I didn't know what role Truman played in it or uh, Eisenhower or the Dulles brothers. I didn't obviously... Tagi didn't even know about Derbyshire. The whole focus was on Kermit Roosevelt, who was the CIA guy. You know, what I learned was that he didn't speak Persian. He was only in Iran for three weeks. He brought boatloads of money with him to pay off the various people to do counterinsurgency stuff. But basically, the, per the person pulling the strings was Derbyshire, because Derbyshire had written the proposal that became Operation Ajax, which is what Roosevelt was going to implement. You know, he had six kids and a second wife. Uh, did he stay in MI6 until retirement? No, he was forced into early retirement in 1979 when Thatcher was elected. She cleaned house, and we still don't know the details of why, but he, at age 55, just when the revolution was happening, when his expertise would have been invaluable, he was pushed off the table. 
And I think that resentment of that treatment was partly what motivated him to give, the, to spill the beans the, the way he did in this transcript. He was no longer a good company man. But as you all point out during the documentary, MI6 guys don't talk this way. I mean, the, right. the transcript is like, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's gold, but I mean, like they don't talk oh. that way, right? Yeah, I mean, he's asked point blank, you know, were you involved in the assassination and murder of the chief of police? And he simply says yes. And you know, he has disparaging things to say about the head of MI6 at the time. And for all those reasons, that initial interview was yanked. Uh, we still don't know any of the details of that. But we use the transcript as the basis for him being our Virgil to guide us through this particular version of Inferno. I know you have a very long history with NLE software and have worked off and on with Avid. You were the guy who's credited with introducing Final Cut Pro to Hollywood as a usable tool, but you did not use those tools on this project. Why was that? I, I had started in 1995 working on Avid on the English patient, and I stuck with Avid until 2002. Uh, when I switched to Final Cut Pro for reasons that we can go into, but basically Avid had such a lock on the system that it was becoming a monoculture, and I felt that wasn't healthy, that there needed to be more competition. At the time, Final Cut Pro was saying, we're ready for the big time. So I, I called them on it, and I said, okay, here it is. And that made them actually very nervous. Uh, <laughs> they didn't support us. We were on our own in Romania with Final Cut Pro 3, but it worked. I stuck with Final Cut Pro through 2011 when they drove a silver stake through its heart. And I understand the reasons why they did it, but the way they did it was it hurt. It was like, uh, you know, uh, being uh, a patient and having someone come and rip the bandage off your, off your chest. <laughs> I went back to Avid for a while, and then I used the zombie version of Final Cut Pro. When it came to this film, enough time had passed, and I thought, well, I'm going to, I'll try Premiere. And uh, it worked out very well. The Premiere is a software company. Apple is a hardware company that sells software to help sell the hardware. And that, there's a difference, a cultural difference there. So obviously through Photoshop, Adobe knows exactly how to deal with professional people in their work. So it turned out to be, you know, Avid is a whole other story. I have had issues with Avid back in 2002, as I indicated. Anyway, I, you know, each system is like a different language or a different dialect of the same language. Yeah. You just have to get used to certain things, but it, it, it worked out fine. Were there any particular differences in the way, and I know that they've added some new technology over the last year or so in the way they handle big batches of stuff. Were there any technologies or things that they do that, in their dialect, made this an easier project or changed the way you did things? On a huge basic level, no. As I said, they're dialects of the different systems. The When I began the project, they, Premiere was not yet fully functional in allowing multiple people to work simultaneously right. on the same material. You, you could do it, but it was very cumbersome to transfer from one to the other. As of 2018, 2019, that became much better. And it more like Avid. Avid is a, a very good system for that kind of work. 
you, I, I know you're still doing stand-up, your stand-up routine with your editing. A couple of those right. shots that they have of you in there talking with Tagi, where you've got that stand-up rig. Just out of curiosity, why why did you? That was a bit unusual when you started back conversation days and all that. Yeah, I mean, I began editing on the Moviola, which was the, the ancient system of editing in Hollywood. You stand to edit on the Moviola. It's a vertical machine. So you're at a bench, and the moviola's here, and the bench is here, and you know you you work with it. Starting in the 70s, I began to use the European system, Avid, uh, Steenbeck, and Kim, and you sit at those things, and that there was something wrong with that. I felt hmm. kept saying I, I called it Steenbeck neck, because really the once you have the film on the Steenbeck, the only thing you're moving is your wrist, whereas with the moviola you're doing all this kind of big rewind action. So I thought, well, I'll put the Steenbeck or the chem up in the air so I can stand. And so I started doing that digitally, working on the Avid on the English patient. I just, I bought the very desk that you see in this film. That's the desk that I use to edit the English patient. So in terms of this project, you're not normally a documentary guy though, right? This is a bit of a shift. You said the Hadron Collider thing, and but you're not normally a documentary guy, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's fair enough, although uh, the first film I edited was The Conversation, Francis Coppola's film. He shot The Conversation itself. Uh, Haskell Wexler was the DP at the time. Haskell yeah. started in documentaries. But The the Conversation, the, the two people in the park, that was shot with six cameras uh, in a real environment. 98% of the people you see in that footage are just ordinary people walking around Union Square. So it was shot as a documentary. I forget the amount of footage, but it was certainly Pretty 20 nice. hours of material that was a documentary. Right. So I, right from the beginning, I had to learn how to edit a documentary. And Francis shot the wedding scene in The Godfather very much the same way. It was an event that he covered with multiple cameras. And he shot the attack on the the village, the, the Valkyries section of Apocalypse, was shot the same way. So they were fictional films, but in terms of the material and how you waded through a huge amount of material to extract these little gems to help tell the story is exactly what I was doing on Crew 53. So what next beyond beyond the scenes for you? That's developing. Uh, we're, we're waiting for somebody. We're waiting for a deep throat to come along and say, you know that film that you're looking for? It was under my bed all these years. But it, it hasn't happened yet. It might happen. I'm writing a, a book for Favor and Favor on film. Previous book uh, I wrote, In the Blink of an Eye, was written 30 years ago. A lot has happened in 30 years, so I'm bringing things up to date. So that's my main focus at the moment. Because you've seen so much and yet you're still sort of pushing the boundaries here, I'd love to ask you a question I've been asking a lot of notables when I get a chance to talk to them as part of a project I'm working on. This has been an extraordinary time for the film industry and film and TV both as it goes through this wrenching shift to streaming, dealing with the pandemic and all the fallout that's happened there. Where do you see the industry 18 months from now? say, early 2022. What's what's it look like? Do we have a still functioning theatrical business? Is everything going to be streaming? What's traditional TV look like? What's your thought as a guy who's been 
on the forefront for many, many, many years now. Where are we going to be? A big picture, uh, human beings have come together in the dark around the campfire to listen to stories for, let's say, 80,000 years. 80,000 years since the invention of language. It's night. You're a Stone Age tribe 40,000 years ago. What do you do at night? You light a fire, you tell stories. That's what going to the movies is. The difference is that instead of staring into the flames as somebody talks to you, you're looking at the flames, which is the pictures, and they're telling the story to you. And so you're doing something a little strange, really. You're, you're in the dark with mostly strangers, you know, a couple of hundred other strangers listening to a story. That's kind of risky on one hand. Why am I here in the dark with strange people? But that's what theater is. It's a bonding experience. So I don't fundamentally think it's going to go away. It will transform, definitely. I'll go out on a limb and say that most of the multiplex systems that we see will go. That pattern, the traditional AMC-type theaters will disappear. Uh, they'll be replaced by theaters run by Netflix, run by Apple, uh, run by Amazon, who will showcase certain things that they want to show you and then lure you into streaming other things uh, when you get back home. At the same time, I think the pattern that we're doing with Coup 53 will also persist, which is that local art house cinemas, independent cinemas, will in a weird way, survive more than the multiplex chain because they're tied into the sensibility of the, the neighborhood that they're in, and they will become curators of interesting films for their particular local environment. And they will do the same thing in the sense that they will showcase films that rise to the top of this iceberg, nine-tenths of which is underwater, that will be like what we're doing with Coup 53. They will, through their mailing list and their website, they will say, here are films that we are showing you, we are curating for you. If you click on this, we get half of the proceeds. The filmmakers get the other half. There is no distributor. There's no middleman. As one of those films or two or ten of those films emerge in popularity, then hopefully the, the coronavirus is gone and people feel comfortable about assembling in the dark with strangers, then you will go to the cinema and experience that Stone Age feeling of sitting around the campfire with people in the dark. Where do you see, where can you find Coup 53? You go to coup53.com, C-O-U-P-5-3 dot com, and there is a list of all the theaters all over the world, meaning the UK, Ireland, Canada, and the US, that are playing this film. You find a local theater that is close to you, and you click on it and buy a ticket. And then it will be delivered to you, and you can stream this film, I, I think, anytime in a 48-hour window. Uh, and other, other things are being... Uh, certified as we speak.
And that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. I am so glad you could join us for the conversation with Walter Murch, the writer, co-writer and editor of Coup 53, three-time Oscar winner for a lot of amazing films. I forgot to mention things like Ghost and Julia that he also won or he got Oscar nominations for. A lot of great films that he's been part of over the decades, and he's still creating interesting work and thinking about the future and how technology can help creative people do really interesting stuff. If you like this podcast, I'd certainly appreciate it if you would rate, review, share, and subscribe. If you really like this podcast, I'd even more appreciate it if you could drop a few dimes into the process of the system that's set up through the platform where I both uh, host and syndicate my show, Anchor.fm, which is owned by Spotify. They make it very easy to contribute toward keeping this well-oiled machine rolling forward. I uh, certainly would appreciate anything you can put in, but understand it's a difficult time. Regardless, Anchor FM also makes it easy if you want to leave a message to leave an audio message for me. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Coup 53, if you get a chance to check it out, on virtual cinema and what that might mean, particularly for art house theaters going forward. What kind of uh, editing system you like? Do you use, uh, if you are in the film business or work in video of any kind, do you, what do you use? Do you use Final Cut Pro? Do you use Adobe Premiere Pro? Do you use Avid? Do you use some other system like Resolve from uh, DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design, which does a lot of other things as well? I'm curious what you're using, or are you just creating video on your TikTok feed and putting it up 15 seconds at a time? Anyway, thanks again for listening. You can reach me on Twitter at David Bloom. You can reach me on LinkedIn at David L. Bloom. Drop me a note if you don't want to do the audio message thing. I'd love to hear from you regardless. In the meantime, please stay safe and saying it's still a crazy, crazy time. I'd like to keep all my listeners in one piece. You mean a lot. And take care of the rest of us out there, too. This is David Bloom You've for Bloom and Tech. Bloom and Over Tech. and I out. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone. Thank you.